Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And now, Chapter 5, The People of the Drama. "'Have you seen all you want of the study?' asked White Mason as we re-entered the house. "'For the time,' said the inspector, and Holmes nodded. "'Then perhaps you would now like to hear the evidence of some of the people in the house. "'We could use the dining-room, Ames. "'Please come yourself first and tell us what you know.' "'The butler's account was a simple and a clear one, "'and he gave a convincing impression of sincerity. "'He had been engaged five years before when Douglas first came to Burlstone.' He understood that Mr. Douglas was a rich gentleman who had made his money in America. He had been a kind and considerate employer, not quite what Ames was used to, perhaps, but one can't have everything. He never saw any signs of apprehension in Mr. Douglas. On the contrary, he was the most fearless man he'd ever known. He ordered the drawbridge to be pulled up every night because it was the ancient custom of the old house, and he liked to keep the old ways up. Mr. Douglas seldom went to London or left the village, but on the day before the crime he had been shopping at Tunbridge Wells. He, Ames, had observed some restlessness and excitement on the part of Mr. Douglas that day, for he had seemed impatient and irritable, which was unusual with him. He had not gone to bed that night, but was in the pantry at the back of the house, putting away the silver, when he heard the bell ring violently. He heard no shot, but it was hardly possible he would, as the pantry and kitchens were at the very back of the house, and there were several closed doors and a long passage between. The housekeeper had come out of her room, attracted by the violent ringing of the bell. They had gone to the front of the house together. As they reached the bottom of the stairs, he had seen Mrs. Douglas coming down it. No, she was not hurrying, 
"'it did not seem to him that she was particularly agitated. "'Just as she had reached the bottom of the stair, "'Mr. Barker had rushed out of the study. "'He had stopped Mrs. Douglas and begged her to go back. "'For God's sake, go back to your room,' he cried. "'Poor Jack is dead. "'You can do nothing. "'For God's sake, go back.' After some persuasion upon the stairs, Mrs. Douglas had gone back. She did not scream. She made no outcry whatever. Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, had taken her upstairs and stayed with her in the bedroom. Ames and Mr. Barker had then returned to the study, where they had found everything exactly as the police had seen it. The candle was not lit at that time, but the lamp was burning. They had looked out of the window, but the night was very dark and nothing could be seen or heard. They had then rushed out into the hall, where Ames had turned the windlass which lowered the drawbridge. Mr. Barker had then hurried off to get the police. Such, in its essentials, was the evidence of the butler. The account of Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, was, so far as it went, a corroboration of that of her fellow servant. The housekeeper's room was rather nearer to the front of the house than the pantry in which Ames had been working. She was preparing to go to bed when the loud ringing of the bell had attracted her attention. She was a little hard of hearing. Perhaps that is why she had not heard the shot. But in any case, the study was a long way off. She remembered hearing some sound which she imagined to be the slamming of a door. That was a good deal earlier, half an hour at least before the ringing of the bell. When Mr. Ames ran to the front, she went with him. She saw Mr. Barker, very pale and excited, come out of the study. He intercepted Mrs. Douglas, who was coming down the stairs. He entreated her to go back. "'and she answered him, but what she said could not be heard. "'Take her up. Stay with her,' he had said to Mrs. Allen. "'She had therefore taken her to the bedroom and endeavored to soothe her. "'She was greatly excited, trembling all over, "'but made no other attempt to go downstairs. "'She just sat in her dressing-gown by her bedroom fire "'with her head sunk in her hands. "'Mrs. Allen stayed with her most of the night. "'As to the other servants, they had all gone to bed.' and the alarm did not reach them until just before the police arrived. They slept at the extreme back of the house and could not possibly have heard anything. So far the housekeeper could add nothing on cross-examination save lamentations and expressions of amazement. Cecil Barker succeeded Mrs. Allen as a witness. As to the occurrences of the night before, he had very little to add to what he had already told the police. Personally, he was convinced that the murderer had escaped by the window. The bloodstain was conclusive, in his opinion, on that point. Besides, as the bridge was up, there was no other possible way of escaping. He could not explain what had become of the assassin or why he had not taken his bicycle, if it were indeed his. He could not possibly have been drowned in the moat, which was at no place more than three feet deep. In his own mind he had a very definite theory about the murder. Douglas was a reticent man, and there were some chapters in his life of which he never spoke. He had emigrated to America when he was a very young man. He had prospered well, and Barker had first met him in California, where they had become partners in a successful mining claim at a place called Benito Canyon. They had done very well, but Douglas had suddenly sold out and started for England. He was a widower at that time. Barker had afterwards realized his money and come to live in London. Thus they had renewed their friendship. Douglas had given him the impression that some danger was hanging over his head, and he had always looked upon his sudden departure from California, and also his renting a house in so quiet a place in England, as being connected with this peril. He imagined that some secret society, some implacable organization, was on Douglas's track, 
which would never rest until it killed him. Some remarks of his had given him this idea, though he had never told him what the society was, nor how he had come to offend it. He could only suppose that the legend upon the placard had some reference to the secret society. "'How long were you with Douglas in California?' asked Inspector MacDonald. Five years altogether.' "'He was a bachelor, you say?' "'A widower.' "'Have you ever heard where his first wife came from?' "'No. I remember his saying that she was of German extraction, "'and I've seen her portrait. "'She was a very beautiful woman. "'She died of typhoid the year before I met him.' "'And you don't associate his past with any particular part of America?' "'I have heard him talk of Chicago. "'He knew that city well, and he'd worked there. "'I've heard him talk of the coal and iron districts.' "'He had traveled a good deal in his time. "'Was he a politician? "'Had this secret society to do with politics?' "'No, he carried nothing about politics. "'And you have no reason to think it was criminal. "'On the contrary, I never met a straighter man in my life. "'Was there anything curious about his life in California? "'He liked best to stay and to work at our claim in the mountains. "'He would never go where other men were if he could help it. "'That's why I first thought that someone was after him. "'Then when he left so suddenly for Europe, I made sure that it was so. "'I believe that he had a warning of some sort. "'Within a week of his leaving, half a dozen men were inquiring for him.' "'What sort of men?' "'Well, they're a mighty hard-looking crowd. "'They came up to the claim and wanted to know where he was. "'I told them that he was gone to Europe and that I did not know where to find him. "'They meant him no good. It was easy to see that.' "'Were these men Americans, Californians?' "'Well, I don't know about Californians. "'They were Americans, all right, but they were not miners. "'I don't know what they were, and was very glad to see their backs. "'And that was six years ago. "'Nearer to seven now. "'And then you were together for five years in California. "'So this business dates back not less than eleven years, at the least?' "'That's correct.' "'It must be a very serious feud "'that would be kept up with such earnestness "'for as long as that. "'It would be no light thing "'that would give rise to it.' "'I think it shattered his whole life. "'It was never quite out of his mind. "'But if a man had danger hanging over him "'and knew what it was, "'don't you think he would turn to the police for protection? "'Maybe it was some danger "'that he could not be protected against. "'There's one thing you should know. "'He always went about armed.' His revolver was never out of his pocket. But by bad luck, he was in his dressing gown and had left it in the bedroom last night. Once the bridge was up, I guess he thought he was safe. "'I like these dates a little clearer,' said MacDonald. "'It's quite six years since Douglas left California. You followed him next year, did you not?' "'That's correct.' "'And he'd been married five years. You must have returned about the time of his marriage.' "'Yeah, about a month before. I was his best man. "'Did you know Mrs. Douglas before her marriage?' "'No, I didn't. I had been away from England for ten years. "'But you have seen a good deal of her since.' "'Barker looked sternly at the detective. "'I've seen a good deal of him since,' he answered. "'If I've seen her, it is because you cannot visit a man without knowing his wife. "'If you imagine there's any connection—' "'I imagine nothing, Mr. Barker.' "'I am bound to make every inquiry which can bear upon the case. "'But I mean no offense.' "'Some inquiries are offensive,' Barker answered angrily. "'It's only the facts that we want. 
"'It is in your interest and everyone's interest "'that they should be cleared up. "'Did Mr. Douglas entirely approve your friendship with his wife?' "'Barker grew paler, "'and his great, strong hands were clasped convulsively together. "'You have no right to ask such questions,' he cried. "'What has this to do with the matter you're investigating?' "'I must repeat the question.' "'Well, I refuse to answer it.' "'You can refuse to answer.' "'but you must be aware that your refusal is in itself an answer, "'for you would not refuse if you had not something to conceal.' "'Barker stood for a moment with his face set grimly "'and his strong black eyebrows drawn low in intense thought. "'Then he looked up with a smile. "'Well, I guess you gentlemen are only doing your clear duty after all, "'and I have no right to stand in the way of it. "'I'd only ask you not to worry Mrs. Douglas over this matter, "'for she has enough upon her just now. "'I may tell you that poor Douglas had just one fault in the world.' "'and that was his jealousy. "'He was fond of me. "'No man could be fonder of a friend. "'And he was devoted to his wife. "'He loved me to come here "'and was forever sending for me. "'And yet if his wife and I talked together "'or there seemed any sympathy between us, "'a kind of wave of jealousy would pass over him, "'and he would be off the handle "'and saying the wildest things in a moment. "'More than once I've sworn off coming for that reason, "'and then he would write me such penitent, "'imploring letters that I just had to.' "'but you can take it from me, gentlemen, "'if it was my last word, "'that no man ever had a more loving, "'faithful wife than he did, "'and I can say also no friend "'could be more loyal than I.' "'It was spoken with fervor and feeling, "'and yet Inspector MacDonald "'could not dismiss the subject. "'You are aware,' said he, "'that the dead man's wedding ring "'has been taken from his finger.' "'So it appears,' said Barker. "'What do you mean by appears? "'You know it's a fact.' "'The man seemed confused and undecided. "'When I said appears, "'I meant that it was conceivable "'that he had himself taken off the ring. "'The mere fact that the ring should be absent, "'whoever may have removed it, "'would suggest to anyone's mind, would it not, "'that the marriage and the tragedy were connected. "'Barker shrugged his broad shoulders. "'I can profess to say what it means,' he answered. "'But if you mean to hint that it would reflect "'in any way upon this lady's honor, "'His eyes blazed for an instant.' "'and then with an evident effort "'he got a grip upon his own emotions. "'Well, then you'd be on the wrong track, that's all.' "'I don't know that I have anything else to ask you at present,' "'said MacDonald, coldly. Uh, "'There was one small point,' remarked Sherlock Holmes. "'When you entered the room, "'there was only a candle lighted on the table, was there not?' "'Yes, that was so. "'And by its light you saw that some terrible incident had occurred.' "'Exactly.' "'You at once rang for help?' "'Yes.' "'And it arrived very speedily?' "'Within a minute or so, yes. "'And yet when they arrived, "'they found that the candle was out "'and that the lamp had been lighted. "'That seems very remarkable.' "'Again Barker showed some signs of indecision. "'I don't see that it was remarkable, Mr. Holmes,' "'he answered, after a pause. "'The candle threw a very bad light. "'My first thought was to get a better one. "'The lamp was on the table, so I lit it. "'And blew out the candle?' "'Exactly. "'Holmes asked no further question, "'and Barker, with a deliberate look "'from one to the other of us, "'which had, as it seemed to me, "'something of defiance in it, "'turned and left the room. "'Inspector MacDonald had sent up a note "'to the effect that he would wait upon "'Mrs. Douglas in her room, "'but she had replied that she would meet us "'in the dining room. "'She entered now, a tall and beautiful woman of thirty, "'reserved and self-possessed to a remarkable degree.' "'very different from the tragic and distracted figure I had pictured. 
"'It is true that her face was pale and drawn, "'like that of one who has endured a great shock. "'But her manner was composed, "'and the finely moulded hand "'which she rested upon the edge of the table "'was as steady as my own. "'Her sad, appealing eyes "'traveled from one to the other of us "'with a curiously inquisitive expression. "'That questioning gaze transformed itself "'suddenly into abrupt speech. "'Have you found anything out yet?' "'She asked. "'Was it my imagination "'that there was an undertone of fear "'rather than of hope?' "'In that question?' "'We've taken every possible step, Mrs. Douglas,' said the inspector. "'You may rest assured that nothing would be neglected.' "'Spare no money,' she said in a dead, even tone. "'It is my desire that every possible effort should be made.' "'Perhaps you can tell us something which may throw some light upon the matter.' "'I fear not, but all I know is at your service.' "'We've heard from Mr. Cecil Barker that you did not actually see—' "'that you were never in the room where the tragedy occurred?' "'No, he turned me back upon the stairs. "'He begged me to return to my room.' "'Quite so. "'You had heard the shot, and you had at once come down. "'I put on my dressing gown, and then came down. "'How long was it after hearing the shot "'that you were stopped on the stair by Mr. Barker?' "'It may have been a couple of minutes. "'It is so hard to reckon time at such a moment.' "'He implored me not to go on. "'He assured me that I could do nothing. "'Then Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, led me upstairs again. "'It was all like some dreadful dream. "'Can you give us any idea how long your husband had been downstairs "'before you heard the shot?' "'No, I cannot say. "'He went from his dressing-room, and I did not hear him go. "'He did the round of the house every night, for he was nervous of fire. "'It's the only thing I've ever known him to be nervous of.' "'That's just the point I want to come to, Mrs. Douglas. "'You have known your husband only in England, have you not?' "'Yes, we've been married five years. "'Have you heard him speak of anything which occurred in America "'and which might bring some danger to him?' "'Mrs. Douglas thought earnestly before she answered. "'Yes,' she said at last. "'I've always felt that there was a danger hanging over him. "'He refused to discuss it with me. "'It was not from want of confidence in me.' "'There was the most complete love and confidence between us. "'But it was out of his desire to keep all alarm away from me. "'He thought I should brood over it if I knew all. "'And so he was silent. "'How did you know it then? "'How did you know it then?' "'Mrs. Douglas's face lit with a quick smile. "'Can a husband ever carry about a secret all his life "'and a woman who loves him have no suspicion of it? "'I knew by his refusal to talk "'about some episodes in his American life. "'I knew it by certain precautions he took. "'I knew it by certain words he let fall. "'I knew it by the way he looked at unexpected strangers. "'I was perfectly certain that he had had some powerful enemies, "'that he believed they were on his track, "'and that he was always on his guard against them. "'I was so sure of it that for years I've been terrified "'if ever he came home later than he was expected.' "'Might I ask,' asked Holmes, "'what the words were which attracted your attention?' "'The valley of fear,' the lady answered. "'That was an expression he has used when I questioned him. "'He would say, "'I have been in the valley of fear, "'and I am not out of it yet. "'Or, are we never to get out of the valley of fear? "'I've asked him when I've seen him more serious than usual, "'and he would answer, "'Sometimes I think that we never shall.' "'Surely you asked him what he meant by the valley of fear.' "'I did, but his face would become very grave, "'and he would shake his head.' "'It is bad enough that one of us should have been in its shadow,' he said. "'Please, God, it shall never fall upon you.' 
It was some real valley in which he had lived and in which something terrible had occurred to him. Of that I'm certain. But I can tell you no more. And he never mentioned any names. Yes, he was delirious with fever once when he had his hunting accident three years ago. Then I remembered that there was a name that came continually to his lips. He spoke it with anger and a sort of horror. Let me see. McGinty was the name. Bodymaster McGinty. I asked him when he recovered who Bodymaster McGinty was and whose body he was master of. Never of mine, thank God, he answered with a laugh, and that was all I could get from him. But there is a connection between Bodymaster McGinty and the Valley of Fear. There is one other point, said Inspector MacDonald. You met Mr. Douglas in a boarding house in London, did you not, and became engaged to him there. Was there any romance? "'Anything secret or mysterious about the wedding?' "'There was romance. There is always romance. "'There was nothing mysterious. "'He had no rival?' "'No, I was quite free. "'You have heard, no doubt, that his wedding ring has been taken. "'Does that suggest anything to you? "'Suppose that some enemy of his old life had tracked him down and committed this crime. "'What possible reason could he have for taking his wedding ring?' For an instant I could have sworn that the faintest shadow of a smile flickered over the woman's lips. "'I really cannot tell,' she answered. "'It is certainly a most extraordinary thing.' "'Well, we will not detain you any longer, and we're sorry to have put you to this trouble at such a time,' said the inspector. "'There are some other points, no doubt, but we can refer to you as they arise.' She rose, and I was again conscious of that quick, questioning glance with which she had just surveyed us. "'What impression has my evidence made upon you?' "'The question in her expression might as well have been spoken. "'Then with a bow she swept from the room. "'She's a beautiful woman, a very beautiful woman,' "'said MacDonald thoughtfully, after the door had closed behind her. "'This man Barker has certainly been down here a good deal. "'He's a man who might be attractive to a woman.' "'He admits that the dead man was jealous, "'and maybe he knew best himself what cause he had for jealousy. "'Then there's that wedding ring. "'You can't get past that. "'The man who tears a wedding ring off a dead man's... "'What do you say to it, Mr. Holmes?' "'My friend had sat with his head upon his hands, "'sunk in the deepest thought. "'Now he rose and rang the bell. "'Ames,' he said when the butler entered, "'where is Mr. Cecil Barker now?' "'I'll see, sir.' "'He came back in a moment to say that Barker was in the garden. "'Can you remember, Ames, what Mr. Barker had on his feet last night "'when you joined him in the study?' "'Yes, Mr. Holmes. He had on a pair of bedroom slippers. "'I bought him his boots when he went for the police. "'And where are the slippers now?' "'They're under the chair in the hall.' "'Very good, Ames. It is, of course, important for us to know "'which tracks may be Mr. Barker's and which from the outside.' "'Yes, sir. I may say that I noticed that the slippers were stained with blood. So, indeed, were my own.' "'That's natural enough, considering the condition of the room. Very good, Ames. We will ring if we want you.' A few minutes later we were in the study. Holmes had brought within the carpet slippers from the hall. As Ames had observed, the soles of both were dark with blood. "'Strange,' murmured Holmes as he stood in the light of the window and examined them minutely. "'Very strange, indeed.' 
"'Stooping with one of his quick feline pounces, "'he placed the slipper upon the blood mark on the sill. "'It exactly corresponded. "'He smiled in silence at his colleagues. "'The inspector was transfigured with excitement. "'Man!' he cried. "'There's not a doubt of it. "'Barker has just marked the window himself. "'It's a good deal broader than any boot mark. "'I mind that you said it was a splay foot. "'And here's the explanation. "'But what's the game, Mr. Holmes?' "'What's the game?' "'Aye, what's the game?' "'My friend repeated thoughtfully. "'White Mason chuckled "'and rubbed his fat hands together "'in his professional satisfaction. "'I said it was a snorter,' he cried. "'And a real snorter it is.' "'We'll return with Chapter 6 "'right after these sponsor messages.' Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. And now, Chapter 6, A Dawning Light. The three detectives had many matters of detail into which to inquire, so I returned alone to our modest quarters at the village inn. But before doing so, I took a stroll in the curious old-world garden which flanked the house. Rows of very ancient yew-trees cut into strange designs girded it round. Inside was a beautiful stretch of lawn with an old sundial in the middle, the whole effect so soothing and restful that it was welcome to my somewhat jangled nerves. In that deeply peaceful atmosphere one could forget, or remember, only as some fantastic nightmare, that darkened study with the sprawling, blood-stained figure on the floor. And yet, as I strolled round it and tried to keep my soul in its gentle balm, a strange incident occurred, which brought me back to the tragedy and left a sinister impression in my mind. I have said that a decoration of yew trees circled the garden. At the end furthest from the house they thickened into a continuous hedge. On the other side of this hedge, concealed from the eyes of anyone approaching from the direction of the house, there was a stone seat. As I approached the spot, I was aware of voices, some remark in the deep tones of a man, answered by a little ripple of feminine laughter. An instant later, I had come around the end of the hedge, and my eyes lit upon Mrs. Douglas and the man Barker before they were aware of my presence. Her appearance gave me a shock. In the dining room she had been demure and discreet, now all pretense of grief had passed away from her. Her eyes shone with the joy of living, and her face still quivered with amusement at some remark of her companion. He sat forward, his hands clasped and his forearms on his knees, with an answering smile upon his bold, handsome face. In an instant, but it was just one instant too late, they resumed their solemn masks as my figure came into view. A hurried word or two passed between them, and then Barker rose and came towards me. "'Excuse me, sir,' 
said he. "'But am I addressing Dr. Watson?' "'I bowed with a coldness which showed, I dare say, "'very plainly the impression which had been produced upon my mind. "'We thought that it was probably you, "'as your friendship with Mr. Sherlock Holmes is so well known. "'Would you mind coming over and speaking to Mrs. Douglas for one instant?' "'I followed him with a dour face. "'Very clearly I could see in my mind's eye "'that shattered figure on the floor. "'Here, within a few hours of the tragedy, "'were his wife and his nearest friend "'laughing together behind a bush in the garden "'which had been his. "'I greeted the lady with reserve. "'I agreed with her grief in the dining-room. "'Now I met her appealing gaze "'with an unresponsive eye. "'I fear that you think me callous and hard-hearted,' "'said she.' I shrugged my shoulders. "'It is no business of mine,' said I. "'Perhaps some day you will do me justice. "'If you only realized—' "'There is no need why Dr. Watson should realize,' said Barker quickly. "'As he has himself said, it is no possible business of his.' "'Exactly,' said I. "'And so I will beg leave to resume my walk.' "'One moment, Dr. Watson.' "'cried the woman in a pleading voice. "'There is one question which you can answer "'with more authority than anyone else in the world, "'and it may make a very great difference to me. "'You know Mr. Holmes and his relations with the police "'better than anyone else can. "'Supposing that a matter were brought confidentially to his knowledge, "'is it absolutely necessary that he should pass it on to the detectives?' "'Yes, that's it,' said Barker eagerly. "'Is he on his own, or he's entirely in with them?' I answered, I really don't know that I should be justified in discussing such a point. I beg, I implore that you will, Dr. Watson. I assure you that you will be helping us, helping me greatly if you will guide us on that point. There was such a ring of sincerity in the woman's voice that for the instant I forgot all about her levity and was moved only to do her will. Mr. Holmes is an independent investigator, I said. He is his own master and would act as his own judgment directed. At the same time, he would naturally feel loyalty towards the officials who were working on the same case, and he would not conceal from them anything which would help them in bringing a criminal to justice. Beyond this I can say nothing, and I would refer you to Mr. Holmes himself if you wanted fuller information. So saying, I raised my hat and went upon my way, leaving them still seated behind that concealing hedge. I looked back as I rounded the far end of it, I saw that they were still talking very earnestly together, and, as they were gazing after me, it was clear that it was our interview that was the subject of their debate. "'I wish none of their confidences,' said Holmes, when I reported to him what had occurred. He had spent the whole afternoon at the manor house in consultation with his two colleagues, and returned about five with a ravenous appetite for a high tea which I had ordered for him. "'No confidences, Watson!' "'for they are mighty awkward "'if it comes to an arrest for conspiracy and murder.' "'You think it will come to that?' "'He was in his most cheerful and debonair humor. "'My dear Watson, "'when I have exterminated that fourth egg, "'I shall be ready to put you in touch "'with the whole situation. "'I don't say that we have fathomed it, "'far from it, "'but when we have traced the missing dumbbell.' "'The dumbbell?' "'Dear me, Watson!' "'Is it possible that you have not penetrated the fact "'that the case hangs upon the missing dumbbell?' "'Well, well, you need not be downcast, "'for between ourselves I don't think that either Inspector Mack "'or that excellent local practitioner "'has grasped the overwhelming importance of this incident. 
"'One dumbbell, Watson. "'Consider an athlete with one dumbbell. "'Picture to yourself the unilateral development, "'the imminent danger of a spinal curvature. "'Shocking, Watson. "'Shocking.' "'He sat with his mouth full of toast "'and his eyes sparkling with mischief, "'watching my intellectual entanglement. "'The mere sight of his excellent appetite "'was an assurance of success, "'for I had very clear recollections "'of days and nights without a thought of food "'when his baffled mind had chafed before some problem "'while his thin, eager features "'became more attenuated "'with the asceticism of complete mental concentration. "'Finally he lit his pipe, "'and sitting in the ingle-nook of the old village inn, "'he talked slowly and at random about his case, "'rather as one who thinks aloud "'than as one who makes a considered statement. "'A lie, Watson!' "'A great, big, thumping, obtrusive, uncompromising lie. "'That's what beats us on the threshold. "'There is our starting point. "'The whole story told by Barker is a lie. "'But Barker's story is corroborated by Mrs. Douglas. "'Therefore, she's lying also. "'They're both lying, and in a conspiracy. "'So now we have the clear problem. "'Why are they lying, and what is the truth "'which they're trying so hard to conceal?' "'Let us try watching, you and I, "'if we can get behind the lie and reconstruct the truth. "'How do I know they're lying? "'Because it's a clumsy fabrication "'which simply could not be true. "'Consider. "'According to the story given to us, "'the assassin had less than a minute "'after the murder had been committed "'to take that ring, "'which was under another ring, "'from the dead man's finger, "'to replace the other ring, "'a thing which he would surely never have done.' "'and to put that singular card beside his victim. "'I say that this was obviously impossible. "'You may argue, but I have too much respect for your judgment, Watson, "'to think that you will do so, "'that the ring may have been taken before the man was killed. "'The fact that the candle had been lit only a short time "'shows that there had been no lengthy interview. "'Was Douglas, from what we hear of his fearless character, "'a man who would be likely to give up his wedding ring "'at such short notice?' "'or could we conceive of his giving it up at all?' "'No, Watson. "'The assassin was alone with the dead man for some time with the lamp lit. "'Of that, I have no doubt at all. "'But the gunshot was apparently the cause of death. "'Therefore the shot must have been fired some time earlier than we are told. "'But there could be no mistake about such a matter as that. "'We are in the presence, therefore, "'of a deliberate conspiracy on the part of the two people who heard the gunshot, "'of the man Barker and of the woman Douglas.' "'When on the top of this I am able to show that the blood mark on the window sill "'was deliberately placed there by Barker, "'in order to give a false clue to the police, "'you will admit that the case grows dark against him. "'Now we have to ask ourselves "'at what hour the murder actually did occur. "'Up to half-past ten the servants were moving about the house. "'So it was certainly not before that time. "'At a quarter to eleven they had all gone to their rooms "'with the exception of Ames, who was in the pantry.' "'I've been trying some experiments after you left us this afternoon, "'and I find that no noise which MacDonald can make in the study "'can penetrate to me in the pantry when the doors are all shut. "'It is otherwise, however, from the housekeeper's room. "'It is not so far down the corridor, "'and from it I could vaguely hear a voice when it was loudly raised. "'The sound from a shotgun is to some extent muffled "'when the discharge is at a very close range, "'as it undoubtedly was in this instant. "'It would not be very loud.' "'and yet in the silence of the night "'it should easily have penetrated to Mrs. Allen's room. "'She is, as she has told us, though, somewhat deaf, "'but nonetheless she mentioned in her evidence "'that she did hear something like a door slamming "'half an hour before the alarm was given. 
"'Half an hour before the alarm was given would be a quarter to eleven. "'I have no doubt that what she heard was the report of the gun, "'and that this was the real instant of the murder. "'If this is so, we have now to determine what Barker and Mrs. Douglas, "'presuming that they are not the actual murderers, "'could have been doing from quarter to eleven, "'when the sound of the shot brought them down, "'until quarter past eleven, when they rang the bell and summoned the servants. "'What were they doing?' "'and why did they not instantly give the alarm? "'That's the question which faces us, "'and when it has been answered, "'we shall surely have gone some way to solve our problem.' "'I am convinced myself,' said I, "'that there's an understanding between those two people. "'She must be a heartless creature "'to sit laughing at some jest "'within a few hours of her husband's murder.' "'Exactly. "'She doesn't shine as a wife "'even in her own account of what occurred.' "'I'm not a whole-hearted admirer of womankind, as you are aware, Watson, "'but my experience of life has taught me that there are few wives "'having any regard for their husbands "'who would let any man's spoken word stand between them "'and that husband's dead body. "'Should I ever marry, Watson, "'I should hope to inspire my wife with some feeling "'which would prevent her from being walked off by a housekeeper "'when my corpse was lying within a few yards of her. "'It was badly stage-managed.' "'for even the rawest investigators "'must be struck by the absence "'of the usual feminine utilization. "'If there had been nothing else, "'this incident alone "'would have suggested a prearranged conspiracy "'to my mind. "'You think definitely "'that Mr. Barker and Mrs. Douglas "'are guilty of the murder?' "'There is an appalling directness "'about your questions, Watson,' "'said Holmes, shaking his pipe at me. "'They come at me like bullets. "'If you put it that Mrs. Douglas "'and Mr. Barker knew the truth "'about the murder,' "'and are conspiring to conceal it, "'then I can give you a whole-souled answer. "'I'm sure they do. "'But your more deadly proposition is not so clear. "'Let us for a moment consider the difficulties "'which stand in the way. "'We'll suppose that this couple are united "'by the bonds of a guilty love, "'and that they've determined to get rid of the man "'who stands between them. "'It is a large supposition, "'for a discreet inquiry among servants and others "'has failed to corroborate it in any way. "'On the contrary,' "'There's a good deal of evidence that the Douglases were very attached to each other.' "'That, I am sure, cannot be true,' said I, "'thinking of the beautiful smiling face in the garden. "'Well, at least they gave that impression. "'However, we will suppose that they are an extraordinarily astute couple "'who deceive everyone upon this point "'and conspire to murder the husband. "'He happens to be a man over whose head some danger hangs. "'And we have only their word for that.' Holmes looked thoughtful. "'I see, Watson. You're sketching out a theory by which everything they say from the beginning is false. According to your idea, there was never any hidden menace, or secret society, or valley of fear, or boss somebody, or anything else. Well, that is a good, sweeping generalization. Let us see what that brings us to.' "'All right. They invent this theory to account for the crime.' They then play up to the idea by leaving this bicycle in the park as proof of the existence of some outsider. The stain on the window sill conveys the same idea. So does the card on the body, which might have been prepared in the house. That all fits into your hypothesis, Watson. But now we come on the nasty, angular, uncompromising bits which don't slip into their places. Why a cut-off shotgun of all weapons, and an American one at that? How could they be so sure that the sound of it would not bring someone on to them? It's a mere chance, as it is, that Mrs. Allen did not start out to inquire for the slamming door. Why did your guilty couple do all this, Watson? 
I confess I can't explain that one. Then again, if a woman and her lover conspire to murder a husband, are they going to advertise their guilt by ostentatiously removing his wedding ring after his death? Does that strike you as very probable, Watson? No, it doesn't. And once again, if the thought of leaving a bicycle concealed outside had occurred to you, would it really have seemed worth doing when the dullest detective would naturally say that this is an obvious blind, as the bicycle is the first thing which a fugitive needed in order to make his escape? I can conceive of no explanation. And yet there should be no combination of events for which the wit of man cannot conceive an explanation. Simply as a mental exercise, without any assertion that it is true, let me indicate a possible line of thought. It is, I admit, mere imagination. But how often is imagination the mother of truth? We will suppose that there was a guilty secret, a really shameful secret in the life of this man Douglas. This leads to his murder by someone who is, we will suppose, an avenger, someone from outside. This avenger, for some reason which I confess I'm still at a loss to explain, took the dead man's wedding ring. The vendetta might conceivably date back to the man's first marriage, and the ring be taken for some such reason. Before this avenger got away, Barker and the wife had reached the room. The assassin convinced them that any attempt to arrest him would lead to the publication of some hideous scandal. They were converted to this idea, and preferred to let him go. For this purpose they probably lowered the bridge, which could be done quite noiselessly, and then raised it again. He made his escape, and for some reason thought that he could do so more safely on foot than on the bicycle. He therefore left his machine where it would not be discovered until he had got safely away. So far we're within the bounds of possibility, are we not? Well, it is possible, no doubt, said I, with some reserve. We have to remember, Watson, that whatever occurred is certainly something very extraordinary. Well, now, to continue our supposititious case, the couple, not necessarily a guilty couple, realize after the murderer is gone that they place themselves in a position in which it may be difficult for them to prove that they did not themselves either do the deed or connive it. They rapidly and rather clumsily met the situation. The mark was put by Barker's bloodstained slipper upon the window sill to suggest how the fugitive got away. They obviously were the two who must have heard the sound of the gun, so they gave the alarm exactly as they would have done, but a good half hour after the event. "'And how do you propose to prove that?' "'Well, if there were an outsider, he may be traced and taken. "'That would be the most effective of all proofs. "'But if not, well, the resources of science are far from being exhausted. "'I think that an evening alone in that study would help me much.' "'An evening alone?' "'I propose to go up there presently. "'I've arranged it with the estimable Ames, "'who is by no means wholehearted about Barker.' I shall sit in that room and see if its atmosphere brings me inspiration. I believe her in the genius loci. You smile, friend Watson. Well, we shall see. By the way, you had that big umbrella of yours, have you not? It is here. Well, I'll borrow that if I may. Certainly, but what a wretched weapon. If there's danger. Nothing serious, my dear Watson, or I should certainly ask for your assistance. "'but I'll take the umbrella. "'At present, I'm only awaiting the return of our colleagues from Tunbridge Wells, "'where they are at present engaged in trying for a likely owner to the bicycle.' 
It was nightfall before Inspector MacDonald and White Mason came back from their expedition, and they arrived exultant, reporting a great advance in our investigation. "'Man, I'll admit that I had my doubts if there was ever an outsider,' said MacDonald. "'But that's all past now. We've had the bicycle identified, and we have a description of our man. So that's a long step on our journey.' "'It sounds to me like the beginning of the end,' said Holmes. "'I'm sure I congratulate you both with all my heart.' "'Well, I started from the fact that Mr. Douglas had seemed disturbed since the day before, when he'd been at Tunbridge Wells.' It was at Tunbridge Wells, then, that he had become conscious of some danger. It was clear, therefore, that if a man had come over with a bicycle, it was from Tunbridge Wells that he might be expected to have come. We took the bicycle over with us and showed it at the hotels. It was identified at once by the manager of the Eagle Commercial as belonging to a man named Hargrave, who had taken a room there two days before. This bicycle and a small valise were his only belongings. He had registered his name as coming from London, but had given no address. The police was London-made, and the contents were British, but the man himself was undoubtedly an American. "'Well, well,' said Holmes gleefully, "'you've indeed done some solid work while I've been sitting spinning theories with my friend. It's a lesson in being practical, Mr. Mack.' "'Aye, it's just that, Mr. Holmes,' said the inspector with satisfaction. "'But this may all fit in with your theories,' I remarked. "'That may or may not be, but let us hear the end, Mr. Mack.' "'Was there nothing to identify this man?' "'So little that it was evident "'that he had carefully guarded himself "'against identification. "'There were no papers or letters "'and no marking upon the clothes. "'A cycle map of the county "'lay on his bedroom table. "'He had left the hotel "'after breakfast yesterday morning "'on his bicycle, "'and no more was heard of him "'until our inquiries.' "'And that's what puzzles me, Mr. Holmes,' "'said White Mason. "'If the fellow did not want "'the hue and cry raised over him,' one would imagine that he would have returned and remained at the hotel as an inoffensive tourist. As it is, he must know that he will be reported to the police by the hotel manager, and that his disappearance will be connected with the murder. As so one would imagine. Still, he has been justified of his wisdom up to date, at any rate, since he has not been taken. But his description, what of that? MacDonald referred to his notebook. Here we have it, so far as they could give it. They don't seem to have taken any very particular stock of him, but still the porter, the clerk, and the chambermaid are all agreed that this about covers the points. He is a man about five foot nine in height, fifty or so years of age, his hair slightly grizzled, a grayish mustache, a curved nose, and a face which all of them described as fierce and forbidding. Well, by the expression, that might almost be a description of Douglas himself, said Holmes. He is just over fifty with grizzled hair and mustache, and about the same height. Did you get anything else? He was dressed in a heavy gray suit with a reefer jacket, and he wore a short yellow overcoat and a soft cap. What about the shotgun? It is less than two feet long. It could very well have fitted into his valise. He could have carried it inside his overcoat without difficulty. And how do you consider that all this bears upon the general case? Well, Mr. Holmes said MacDonald. When we have got our man, and you may be sure that I had his description on the wires within just five minutes of hearing it, we shall be better able to judge. But even as it stands, we have surely gone a long way. We know that an American calling himself Hargrave came to Turnbridge Wells two days ago with a bicycle and police. 
"'In the latter was a sawed-off shotgun, "'so he came with the deliberate purpose of crime. "'Yesterday morning he set off for this place on his bicycle, "'with his gun concealed in his overcoat. "'No one saw him arrive, so far as we can learn, "'but he need not pass through the village to reach the park gates, "'and there are many cyclists upon the road. "'Presumably he had once concealed his cycle among the laurels where it was found, "'and possibly lurked there himself, with his eye on the house, "'waiting for Mr. Douglas to come out.' The shotgun is a strange weapon to use inside a house, but he had intended to use it outside, and there it has a very obvious advantage, as it would be impossible to miss with it, and the sound of shots is so common in an English sporty neighborhood that no particular notice would be taken. Well, that's all very clear, said Holmes. Well, Mr. Douglas did not appear. What was he to do next? He left his bicycle and approached the house in the twilight. He found the bridge down and no one about. He took his chance, intending, no doubt, to make some excuse if he met anyone. But he met no one. He slipped into the first room that he saw, and concealed himself behind the curtain. Thence he could see the drawbridge go up, and he knew that his only escape was through the moat. He waited until quarter past eleven, when Mr. Douglas, upon his usual nightly round, came into the room. He shot him and escaped, as arranged. He was aware that the bicycle would be described by the hotel people and be a clue against him, "'so he left it there and made his way by some other means to London "'or to some safe hiding-place which he had already arranged. "'How is that, Mr. Holmes?' "'Well, Mr. Mack, it's very good, and very clear, so far as it goes. "'That is your end of the story. "'My end is that the crime was committed half an hour earlier than reported, "'that Mrs. Douglas and Barker are both in a conspiracy to conceal something, "'that they aided the murderer's escape, "'or at least that they reached the room before he escaped.' "'and that they fabricated evidence of his escape to the window, "'whereas in all probability they had themselves let him go by lowering the bridge. "'That's my reading of the first half.' "'The two detectives shook their heads. "'Well, Mr. Holmes, if this is true, "'we only tumble out of one mystery and into another,' said the London inspector. "'And in some ways a worse one,' added White Mason. "'The lady's never been in America in all her life.' "'What possible connection could she have with an American assassin "'which would cause her to shelter him?' "'I freely admit the difficulties,' said Holmes. "'I propose to make a little investigation of my own tonight, "'and it is just possible that it may contribute something to the common cause.' "'Can we help you, Mr. Holmes?' "'No, thank you. "'Darkness and Dr. Watson's umbrella. "'My wants are simple, and Ames, the faithful Ames, "'no doubt he will stretch a point for me.' All my lines of thought lead me back invariably to the one basic question. Why should an athletic man develop his frame upon so unnatural an instrument as a single dumbbell? It was late that night when Holmes returned from his solitary excursion. We slept in a double-bedded room, which was the best that the little country inn could do for us. I was already asleep when I was partly awakened by his entrance. "'Well, Holmes,' I murmured, "'have you found anything out?' He stood beside me in silence, his candle in his hand. Then the tall, lean figure inclined towards me. "'I say, Watson,' he whispered, "'would you be afraid to sleep in the same room with a lunatic, a man with softening of the brain, an idiot whose mind has lost its grip?' "'Not in the least,' I said, in astonishment. "'Ah, that's lucky,' he said, and not another word would he utter that night." Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 7 and 8 
of the Valley of Fear, a Sherlock Holmes adventure from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We appreciate reviews very much, and we have a few recent ones we'd like to share with you. The first one, five stars, amazing stories. I'm a photographer, and I love to listen while I'm editing my photos. Also, while cleaning my house. I love the adventures that Dr. Watson and Sherlock take us on. Thank you for reading his stories with so much enthusiasm and creativity. It keeps me entertained for hours. And now that I've listened to all of them, I have to wait every Sunday for a new one. I'm actually going back and listening to some of the older ones all over again. My top podcast, for sure. Thank you. Suji. Down from Suji96, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, 1001, five stars. Love this podcast. Thanks. Down from Brendick, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Hound, five stars. This was brilliantly read, and although I know the story, it was so beautifully read that I was drawn in fully. Down from G33DDC, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, five stars. My favorite podcast, Sherlock Holmes. John, Sherlock Holmes is my favorite podcast in the 1001 Network of Podcasts. The Hounds of Baskerville is the best so far. Keep up the great work. Sean from Yonkers. Irish Gal 333, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, keep up the good work, five stars. I'm so thankful I found this podcast last month. I've been listening almost every day since while working. Keep up the good work. They're from YUB, Apple Podcast, France. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to sit down and write these reviews. We know it takes you time, and we appreciate them very much, and they help new listeners find us. Also, it's the Christmas season, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we always encourage you to go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and consider pledging a couple dollars a month to help us make it from 1001 Stories to 2001 Stories. I know you get asked all the time for contributions and help. Here's a case where it's just me, and it's been me for five years, sharing stories and sharing history. Something I love to do. I'm definitely not a conglomerate or a huge business that has moved in like many have and trying to sweep all the independents out of the market. I'm just one guy wearing a lot of hats, having a lot of fun, and working very hard to provide a really good product. Taking all that into account, I think I'm worth the cost of a cup of blended coffee every month. So, so please take a moment, if you will, visit patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork and send us $5 every month. We would appreciate that very very much. Meanwhile, hope you're having a happy and fruitful Christmas season. We'll be back next Sunday night. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.